chapter 2. Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together, and we come to chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus writing, and to the church, uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as who do not, uh, as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he, over, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. He sh they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, even as we've sung this morning, for the greatness of your love for us. And it is a, a, a mystery to us that we could find a place not only in your mind and in the expression of your power and, and uh, uh, your sense of responsibility related to your creation, but that we could find a place in your heart that you would love us and then pour your love out on us in all the ways that you do. We are so grateful to be objects of your love. We thank you as well that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. And we thank you for making us your poema, your work of art, Lord, your poem to this world. And as you conform us into the image of Christ, and we pray that you would use our time in your word this morning to further uh, your workmanship within our lives. We pray for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we come to the fourth of Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in the Revelation. And uh, in coming to his letter to the church in Thyatira, uh, famously uh, one uh, ancient Roman author, uh, Pliny the Elder, he said, uh, is said to have encapsulated uh, the significance of Thyatira in the ancient world in his writings with the phrase, Thyatira and other unimportant communities. Uh, so it didn't have kind of the luster of 
of, of Ephesus or, or the luster of some of the other cities in the ancient world. And uh, we would know nothing about the city of Tyre. It wouldn't be anything anybody would care anything about except for uh, be completely forgotten except for the fact that Jesus wrote a letter to the church there and also uh, a woman by the name of Lydia uh, came from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple in the book of Acts while in Philippi heard the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul and became uh, an early Christian in the early church. Now, Jesus doesn't write these, these letters to these seven uh, churches in these cities because these cities necessarily are on a, a kind of must-see list for uh, uh, people suffering from wanderlust or wanting to see the great cities of the world. But there's something about each of these cities that when he looks at them and he looks at the characteristics, there's something... Uh, a spiritual something going on in that church that he recognized needed to be dealt with locally and at that time, but he also recognized that what they were dealing with was something that we as Christians and churches all the way until his return would be dealing with as, uh, as well. Uh, and so uh, he writes these letters concerning the church in Ephesus. He reminds us of the importance of not leaving our first love. Concerning the church at Smyrna, he instructs us on how to live in an environment of, of extreme uh, persecution as Christians. To the church in Pergamos, Jesus warns us about uh, the very uh, subtle danger uh, of uh, compromise concerning holiness and what a lack of holiness will represent to a church, but also to the individual Christian. And then here in his letter to the church at Thyatira, Jesus warns us really very, very pointedly concerning the danger that unbiblical tolerance of sin represents to a church and represents to us as individual Christians. Important to understand uh, this uh, Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira. In fact, it would be almost impossible to understand it without uh, knowing at least one thing about what characterized the city in the ancient world at the time that Jesus wrote this uh, letter. Thyatira was not a seaport. It didn't gain its money in that kind of a way. Very much inland, uh, much the way that uh, Modesto is, but it was a manufacturing center. It was a, a marketing center at that time. And because it was a part of the Roman Empire that actually produced something, it made something that then went into the markets of the world, and because it was a marketing and a manufacturing center at that time, it was famous for its trade guilds, guilds and it possessed more trade guilds uh, than any other city its size at that time. And trade guilds were essentially what we would call today uh, trade unions, only much, much, much more powerful uh, than uh, any union and, and its, its expression in the United States today. There were trade guilds that were made up of workers in wool, workers in leather, in linen cloth, in bronze, in clothing. There were dyers, there were potters, there were bakers, there were slave traders. And the strength of these trade guilds made it very, very hard for any merchant 
or business owner to survive in Thyatira without being a part of uh, one of these trade guilds. And it made it uh, almost impossible, certainly very, very hard, for an individual worker to get a job without belonging to one of these trade guilds. And so we look at that and we say, well, what's the problem? Join a trade guild. And uh, the problem is, is that the trade guild meetings were centered upon the worship of various pagan gods. And every guild had its own god or gods. And so typically, the meetings would begin with a common meal, and, uh, and then the meeting would begin, and it would end by uh, throwing uh, wine onto the fire that would be burning in the meeting hall, and that represented prayer being offered up uh, to their God in the same way that we say uh, grace and give thanks before we uh, eat a meal and acknowledging the Lord as the provider. Then the meat that would be eaten at the meal would have been offered as a sacrifice uh, to their idols. A small part of it would be burnt to, uh, to their God. The remaining part would be eaten uh, at the meal. And then it wasn't uncommon for the feast to then degenerate into drunkenness, into sexual immorality. And in large part because uh, these gods were man-made, uh, uh, these gods that they had created and that they were worshiping, uh, were themselves understood to be very, very sensual and very, very uh, immoral. And so participation in these pagan religious practices were a requirement for membership in a guild. And in the minds of uh, everyone else, a failure to join a guild and yet still expect to prosper within a particular trade, it would be an affront to them. People would say, how in the world do you think that uh, you can enjoy the blessings of the God uh, who is bestowing blessings upon uh, our trade and then refuse to worship uh, that God? Now, obviously, no Christian uh, could uh, uh, be a part of this kind of idolatry or sexual immorality. And so they were in a very, very difficult place in that city. Uh, and again, very difficult for a merchant to survive without joining a guild. Very difficult uh, to get a job in the trades without joining uh, a guild. But to do so would require engaging in idolatry, engaging in sexual immorality, in violation of the Word of God, and uh, of course the destruction of their Christian uh, witness. And so we can feel the weight of it, uh, even through 2,000 years of separation. Uh, uh, even today, as we would put their, uh, ourselves in the place of these Christians and ask ourselves, what would we do in that environment of, of Thyatira? It doesn't mean that there weren't any other jobs to be found in Thyatira, uh, but these were the good-paying jobs. Uh, these were the union jobs. These were the jobs that you could get and then marry and, and uh, raise a family. And so all of the other jobs that you would have in the city independent of, of the guilds would be very, very uh, secondary in, in all ways to these other jobs and certainly in the realm of, of pay and, and security. And so they were faced with this, this dilemma. A, uh, what's to come first? 
a good paying job with all of its financial prosperity, all of its security at the expense of my Christian witness, or to refuse uh, that kind of a job in order to stay faithful to Jesus and His commandments and then endure financial hardship as a result. Again, we can feel the pressure uh, that they uh, were under because the pressure is timeless. This kind of thing cycles, characterizes uh, large parts of the world even, uh, uh, even today and in, in some ways uh, uh, represented uh, increasingly in its own way in our own uh, country. And there was this very influential prophetess in the church who was advocating in the church in, in Thyatira. And remember, in those days, there was just one church in these cities. There wasn't uh, 130 of them, like in Modesto. I'm not putting it down. But uh, that was the church. And, uh, and, and so uh, here she was, very, very influential in this church in Thyatira, and she advocated for taking the good job. Uh, complete with uh, uh, its associated idolatry and sexual immorality. And Jesus writes this letter uh, to make His will known to the church concerning uh, the matter and concerning that matter to this day. Jesus uh, comes as He does to each of the letters in His self-description is very instructive there in the latter part of verse 18. Again, he is reminding them of something, of, the, of what John saw of him in, in Revelation chapter 1, something of God's character, Jesus' character, that the church had lost sight of and desperately needed to be reminded of. And so he comes to them as these things says, the Son of God. He reminds this church that He is the Son of God. He reminds them of His deity and of His absolute authority over all things and certainly over the church. Uh, that this is not uh, a, a, an issue of, of understanding who He is, that He is greater than any trade guild, uh, all of the trade guilds uh, put together. He is greater than uh, any false uh, uh, prophetess, any church uh, leaders, and he reminds them that he is God, that he is a great king. There should be no uh, thought of, of giving him a second place in any way in this discussion that was going on and the decisions being made uh, in uh, Thyatira. And so he speaks to them in essence and says, I am worthy of your full fidelity to me. For you to love me with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and to obey my commandments, no matter what the environment uh, might be. And the idea is that they've lost a sense of awe of Jesus Christ. Uh, they've lost a sense of reverence uh, for Him. That someone would be speaking this kind of doctrine within the church. So he reminds them that he is the Son of God and God the Son. He then declares himself to be uh, he who has eyes like a flame of fire. This communicates two things. First, that he sees everything, uh, that nothing escapes his, uh, his uh, uh, attention. And then the second thing it communicates is that he judges what he sees with a 
uh, pure, white-hot holiness. And so this church had lost the consciousness of the fact that Jesus was watching everything that they were doing and then judging it by the holiness of heaven. And so it's easy for us, it's easy for a church to grow accustomed to iniquity, grow accustomed to the sin of the world, to begin to think as Christians that as long as we're not quite living as bad or as low as the culture uh, around us, then we're doing okay with God. But Jesus' standard for His church is not the sinful culture, that surrounds us, but it's His Word, and that's what He judges us by. And the church at Thyatira has completely lost sight of this. He goes on further, and he speaks of His feet being like fine uh, brass. Brass in the Bible, the metal is a symbol of judgment in the Scriptures. And for instance, in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle, and then ultimately with the Old Testament temple, the bronze altar uh, uh, was the place where sacrifices were for sin were offered, and uh, where sin was judged in terms of, of a picture of that. And it was communicating that Jesus here not only sees sin, Uh, And he not only judges that sin on the basis of his holiness, but then he will then righteously punish it. He will righteously resist it. And so he will come down in essence, he's declaring with uh, with both feet upon what they are doing here uh, in this church. And he will stamp out uh, this error, this defilement that's been allowed in in the church, and, uh, and he will uh, judge it. And, uh, uh, and of course, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, as Peter uh, wrote, because the world doesn't claim to represent Christ, but we claim to represent Christ. So he promises to come and to judge and to refine uh, this church. And so the church at Thyatira has lost its fear of God, zero fear of God, zero reverence for God, and zero fear of, of His judgment. Jesus declares that in verse 19, I know your works, and then He describes those works in commending them to begin with in uh, the end of verse 19. He acknowledged their love. They were a loving church. He acknowledged their serving uh, service. They were a serving church. They served the needs of of other people. And uh, he acknowledged their faith. They openly identified themselves as a Christian church in the community. Uh, And uh, and he commended their uh, patience, that sense of their steadfastness. They just kept on uh, keeping on in, in in the city. And, uh, and this church was continuing to grow in all of these areas. If you had walked into the church of Thyatira uh, and, and, and as a Christian, you would have concluded that this is the most amazing, most vibrant, most exciting church you had ever attended. And that would be your assessment of the church until you heard the Bible study part of the service. 
And, and until you heard their understanding and their teaching of the Bible, which is what Jesus then addresses next in his rebuke and his correction that he begins with there in verse 20. He said, you allow that woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things offered to idols. And so Jesus rebukes uh, the ministry. He rebukes the uh, spiritual influence uh, of uh, this woman in the church named Jezebel. Uh, commentators go back and forth, and you can have your own opinion related to it, uh, wh whether this was a, uh, her actual name or whether it was uh, intended to draw our attention uh, to the Jezebel of the Old Testament because she was uh, basically doing the same thing as, the, as, as Jezebel in the Old Testament. It is highly unlikely that her given name would have been Jezebel. Uh, 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 the Jezebel of the Old Testament, I mean, uh, she just defiled the name for good. I mean, e even in our culture, people will refer, well, she's just a Jezebel. And uh, by the way, I, I, that just came to my mind. I, do, I hope it doesn't mean something uh, beyond uh, the terribleness that it represents here. But you don't, you, you don't run into a lot of Jezebels. And because the name has been spoiled... Uh, by the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And it had been spoiled in that day too. You never run into when you go to school and, and, they, uh, and your first day at school and they run off the roll, you, you never, never run into anyone named uh, Adolf. Because the name's been permanently destroyed by a, a, a human being in human history. Uh, same thing, Judas Iscariot did the same thing with the name Judas, uh, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. It's forever been ruined. And so, highly unlikely given the stigma of the name that this was uh, uh, the, the name that she actually uh, 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 had. And, uh, and, and so she probably uh, tying her in our minds and directing us for understanding what's going on here to the ancient Jezebel. This Jezebel in verse 20, she called herself a prophetess. And a prophetess or a prophet is someone who claims to speak for God. You'll notice that Jesus made it clear that she declared herself to be a prophetess. And uh, that was not the assessment that he held uh, 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 of, uh, of her. He didn't recognize her as one. She was a false prophetess. Her message was twofold. You see, first, she taught Jesus' servants, the members of the church, that it was okay, it's okay to commit uh, sexual immorality, and uh, they could partake of the sexually, uh, sexual immorality associated with the trade guild meetings. And then second, she taught the church that it was okay to eat things offered to idols. And so, again, uh, doubtless teaching that to engage in the idolatry associated with being a member of a trade guild, it's perfectly okay. So she advocates physical adultery for Christians. She advocates spiritual adultery uh, for Christians. And being unfaithful uh, to marriage vows as a husband to a wife and uh, as was happening in, in these uh, guild meetings, and then also okay to be 
unfaithful as Christians to the vows that they had made to Jesus, to love Him and to follow Him, obey Him as, a, as the bride uh, of Christ. Now, in all of this, uh, she was just like the Old Testament Jezebel and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and her absolutely reprehensible spiritual influence that Jezebel had uh, among the children of Israel uh, in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel uh, it was uh, a, a, a very, very wicked, wicked place when Jezebel was uh, uh, in, in that place of influence. And so uh, the same kind of uh, influence for sexual immorality and idolatry that the Old Testament Jezebel was uh, influencing within Israel, she was exerting that in the church of Thyatira. Jezebel was the wife of a king of Israel by the name of Ahab. Ahab was the single most wicked king that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had. And the northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king. All of them were wicked. Ahab was wicked in the context of wickedness. And, and, and that gives you some sense of where this guy's uh, head was and, and the kind of life that, 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 he, uh, that he lived. And, uh, uh, and so uh, the northern kingdom of Israel marked by uh, this wickedness, and, but as one commentator put it so perfectly, Jezebel, in marrying uh, Ahab, Jezebel was Ahab's evil genius. As wicked as Ahab was, Jezebel took wickedness within the kingdom beyond what he would have ever thought uh, of influencing the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for. She was a daughter of a pagan Sidonian king, was given to Ahab in marriage. It was a political marriage, and she was a worshiper uh, of the pagan god uh, Baal. And because of the marriage, uh, being the, the wife of a king, being a queen, uh, she was very, very influential in expanding the worship of Baal uh, dramatically among uh, God's people to such a degree that she uh, literally was so emboldened that she endeavored to uh, kill every legitimate prophet of Yahweh, of Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and even attempted to kill the prophet uh, Elijah. Uh, significantly, because Baal was considered uh, the God of nature and the God of fertility in the ancient uh, world, uh, the God who determined the fertility of your crops, determined the fertility of your womb, determined the fertility uh, of uh, your lives, uh, livestock. Uh, but all worshipers would engage in sex with sexual uh, temple prostitutes in order to assure uh, the fertility or the abundance of their crops and of their livestock, which is exactly what Jezebel was here in Thyatira advocating, that it's okay to compromise in your relationship with God if doing so is required in order to prosper in this world. 
in order to have a good paying job, uh, uh, you just need to uh, uh, go along to, to get along. I remember uh, counseling a woman who attended the church many years ago, in fact, decades ago, and her situation was a very, very difficult one. And, um, and I listened to her uh, and lay out the entire situation uh, that she was in, and my heart uh, broke for her, for what uh, the circumstances that, that she was in. And I began to share with her what the Bible had to say about what she needed to do in the situation that, that she was in. And she listened to me for a minute or so, and then with great frustration, she interrupted me. She raised her voice and she said, that's the Bible, this is real life. And that's the spirit of Jezebel. Uh, and uh, you obey the Bible, you follow its instruction, as long as it's easy to do. Uh, but uh, when uh, doing so gets hard, it begins to cost you something, then you can just pack it in and address life the way uh, that the world does. Now, in verse 24, Jesus gives us some insight into all of this uh, in His description of her teaching as being the depths of Satan. And uh, the Gnostic teachers of that day uh, who taught, among other things, that there was a separation between the spirit and the physical. You had two entities that you were uh, as a Christian. And these, these were absolutely uh, separate. So you could engage in all kinds of, of sin physically, and it had no effect upon who you were spiritually. Uh, it, 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 and uh, there was a separation there. It didn't reflect upon your spirituality. You, you could remain deeply spiritual and uh, engage in, in all manner of sin. And they also claimed to possess a deeper knowledge of Christianity, a deeper knowledge of God. So buzzwords, two buzzwords for a Gnostic teaching were words like uh, deep and depths, because they claimed we know the deep truths about uh, God. And like the Gnostics, she was teaching that a Christian, uh, Christian spirituality is completely disassociated with what uh, they do with their body. Engaging in sin, engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry associated with the trade guilds in the pagan culture as a whole, in fact, is not only not bad, but it's actually good because it demonstrates your ability as a Christian to engage in those sins and then let the world see how it doesn't affect your Christian life. And in fact, that your participation in all of this while continuing to claim to be a Christian is actually good advertising for the power and the superiority of Christianity. And then a part of the whole Gnostic kind of idea behind it, and you hear it every so often, even today, Christians uh, speaking about it. And the idea was, how can you really appreciate the truth of God? How can you really appreciate the grace of God uh, in your life unless you also explore and participate in all of the depths of evil that the world offers uh, to you? And that is the means by which to come to discover the, and appreciate the greatness of God's love and, and, of, His, and of His grace. 
But in fact, while claiming Jesus says here to lead them into a deeper understanding of God, a deeper understanding of Christianity, Jesus declared that she was taking them deeper into Satan and into his lies. What she was advocating here uh, was uh, satanic and it, it was demonic. And, uh, and uh, as is every teacher, uh, who espouses this kind of thing, every Christian who espouses this kind of thinking today, that says, uh, whether from a pulpit or says it from one-on-one Christian to another Christian in an attempt to be influential, feel free to compromise God's Word uh, whenever it's demanding and whenever it's unpopular to adhere to it. Now, before we leave this, it's vital to understand that Jesus doesn't merely denounce uh, the teaching of compromise uh, by uh, Jezebel here. He denounces it explicitly, uh, but who he denounces most strongly uh, in this letter are the weak leaders in the church that were allowing this kind of thing to happen. And you notice it there in verse 20. He said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman and then so forth the you there is singular in the original language and jesus is condemning the leader of this church for allowing this to happen for tolerating this kind of thing and so her sin was compromise that was the great sin of pergamos as we saw uh, uh, last time and, uh, but the greater sin that Jesus is addressing here, even beyond that, uh, is the tolerance of compromise. The tolerance of church leadership in allowing her to advocate for sexual immorality and uh, openly and for idolatry in the Christian life. You ask yourself, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the story of Ahab and, and, and Jezebel, you ask yourself, why was the ancient Jezebel so successful in her destructive influences in Israel? It was because of the weakness of her husband. You can hardly find a weaker man uh, in the Old Testament than that, that man. And Uh, Why was the Jezebel in the church in Thyatira so successful in her destructive influence within the church there? Because of the weakness of uh, the leadership there uh, in the church uh, that allowed it. And so Jezebels or false teachers or false prophets and prophetesses, they flourish in a church for one single great reason— and, and that is weak leadership in the church, leaders who lack a fear uh, of God. And so here they are, they're more concerned about what people think of them or, or uh, being broad-minded in a broad-minded culture and, and, uh, and, and so forth. And, uh, and the reason we can assess that here is you notice in verse 20 that Jesus reminds these leaders that these are my servants. That church does not belong to you. You didn't pay for them with your blood. It doesn't belong to you. 
The church isn't a place where you can come in with all of your ideas, he's speaking to the leaders, and then just make it into whatever you want to make it into. Those people don't belong to you. You're supposed to do what I've called you to do, and for the church to be what it's supposed to be, but they lack that reverence, they lack that fear uh, of God. But it isn't just pastors and and church leaders who can uh, grow weary in resisting uh, the darkness and the ungodliness and the, the sin of, of a culture and then be, begin to cave and become tolerant of it. It can be true of a parent, and any parent understands this, where, the, where you can just grow tired of resisting the evil and the compromise that the kids want to bring in to the home or any head of anything in our culture uh, as a Christian faces these same kind of challenges and the same kind of temptation to allow compromise and, uh, and the compromise only occurs because of a tolerance uh, of, of someone. Jesus said, that she was, in verse 21, given uh, time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. So don't view her as some kind of a misguided prophetess or a misguided, sincere uh, woman. Uh, she had been warned previously and, uh, and refused uh, uh, to heed uh, God in that warning. And this uh, unwillingness to repent despite previous warning of some kind that God gave to her, uh, exposes on her part, I think, uh, definitely, pride and a rebellious spirit. Why would she not repent if God Himself has called her to repent before Jesus writes this letter? Because of her own pride and because of her own rebellious spirit. And I would contend when you see these kind of people that want to be influential in the body of Christ for sexual immorality, for idolatry, for only obeying God when it costs you uh, nothing, to take a step back from that Christian, take a step back from that, uh, that Christian uh, leader, and then just look and see if you aren't looking at a person who is by nature rebellious in their core, and by nature uh, proud. And almost always you see the same thing, a natural bent toward pride, a natural bent toward rebellion that they will not bring uh, uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and deal with it as sin, and, uh, and then uh, and they take it into this place of influence within the body of Christ. You notice, too, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus' judgment that He promised to bring upon her and those who commit adultery with her. He said He's going to cast her into a, a sick bed. In other words, a, sick, a, a sickness that would confine her to a bed, to a deathbed. And God can do all kinds of things to minimize the influence of ungodly people uh, within the body of Christ. Uh, we might remember when uh, in the church at Corinth, when Paul wrote his letter to them about the Lord's Supper and not partaking of, you know, big meals and eating them in front of people uh, that have nothing to eat and, and the sin that was in the lives of 
uh, many of those in the church at Corinth. And Paul wrote of the fact that, uh, that some of them had gone to sleep or they had died as a result of their sin. God removed them because of their, uh, their ungodly uh, uh, influence. And uh, Jesus then said he would cast those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. And this appears to be those Christians that were in the church at Thyatira and because the leaders had given this woman uh, a platform, remember not everybody in those days had a Bible on their lap like we had it. They trusted their leaders to tell them what was true biblically. And so they get seduced, but uh, it, they're early in the seduction. They're early in kind of heading down uh, uh, this path in, in uh, following her teaching into a life of sexual immorality and idolatry. And he promised that he would take them into great tribulation if they, like her, refused to uh, repent. And then Jesus said with great sobriety in verse 23 that he will kill her children with death. And her, her children now refers to uh, her, uh, those men and women that were her disciples. I mean, uh, deep, uh, uh, deeply adhering. Uh, to her teacher, her teachings, and becoming uh, influential uh, as well. And so he said, I, uh, I will cause them to perish in some way of, of his choosing in order to uh, not only contain their influence within the body of Christ, but also to make them an example to uh, the body of Christ as a whole. As he mentions there in verse 23, and the churches. Uh, all the churches shall know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. In other words, when He would come in and judge uh, those that were advocating this doctrine in the way that He would, it would put a, a fresh fear of God uh, in any church then uh, following Thyatira on this path. There'd be a fresh concern for a holy living which is always a good thing. Jesus said at the end of verse 23 that He would give each of them uh, according to their works. In other words, Jesus' judgment is never uh, unfair. It's never arbitrary. It is, he never judges too much or too little in any uh, situation or in any individual life. He would chasten within this church uh, 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 with a, in, in a very, very uh, measured way, but he would chasten uh, those that were uh, in, in the place that they were in this regard. He then instructs wonderfully in verses 24 and 25, there were people in this church that didn't hold on to this doctrine. And so he said to them, he said, I, I will put on you no other burden. That is no other burden than to continue to do what they were already doing, and that is steering clear of this false doctrine and this false Christianity that was being taught and lived uh, around them. And uh, no matter how, it's always good to be reminded, no matter how bad things get in the world, no matter how apostate things might get uh, even within the church, there's always a godly remnant 
that, it, that, that stays true uh, to Christ through it all. And Jesus in, encourages them here. And he to, tells them in verse 25, hold fast to what you have until I come. And uh, what did they have? Uh, uh, he's saying, hold fast to Christianity and the Christian life as I have defined it and as the Bible uh, defines it. He closes with his uh, promise to overcomers in verses 26 to 28. And uh, the overcomers are those who keep Jesus' works until the end. They obey him till the end. And he told them that he would uh, give uh, them uh, power over the nations. He quotes from Psalm 2. Uh, in Psalm 2 is messianic. It speaks of the Messiah coming and establishing His kingdom in the world. And the Bible teaches that Jesus will do so, a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. He'll establish it following His second coming, and that we as Christians will rule and reign with Him in the sense that uh, in, in some way we're going to assist Him in His capacity of, of ruling the world uh, at that time. He then declares, I will give him uh, the morning star. Uh, there in verse 28, the morning star is the final star or planet uh, uh, to disappear in the morning at the rising of the sun. So the sun's coming up, all of these lesser stars begin to uh, disappear, and there's always that last star that disappears uh, at, at sunrise. And we know it as the planet uh, Venus. Now, Jesus uh, takes this, uh, the, the, the morning star, and he ascribes it to himself later in chapter 22, verse 16. And, uh, and so he declares, in essence, that uh, he is the one who will bring uh, an end to the long night of man's sin in the world, a long uh, night of man's rebellion against God uh, in, uh, in the world one day, and he'll usher in a new day at his uh, second coming. And so uh, the, uh, the overcomer uh, will have Jesus himself now and forever, and that's the greatest reward of all. He then closes with uh, the exhortation to have an ear to hear what he has just uh, told them. And Jesus knew that Jezebel and her uh, followers were not going to hear him. Uh, they weren't going to listen uh, uh, to him uh, a, a, at all. They weren't going to compromise here. But it's important in their, in their, from their doctrine, but it's important that we do that no matter how much this kind of thing comes to represent Christianity as we serve Him until we go home to heaven individually or until the Lord returns uh, for us, but that we remain uh, overcomers to, because we live in a culture that is very much like uh, Thyatira, complete with all of its pressure for us to compromise our Christian faith in order to fully prosper within the culture. And you can feel the pressure. You can feel it coming. You feel what it is already in, in our culture, barring something uh, turning around. But you can sense the, uh, you know, the, the, the reading of it as it, is it's uh, a, a gaining strength uh, demonically within, within the culture. 
and, uh, and this letter encourages us to stay strong uh, against this and to heed uh, the warning. So Jezebel's sin, compromise. A great sin, worthy of condemnation in its own. The greater sin that he addresses here is the tolerance of that compromise. So compromise in our lives, individually, is a great sin because it's rebellion, it's disobedience. But it only exists because it's tolerated. And that's the greater, the greater sin. And so the importance of allowing it to search our own lives here today and its application to our own Christian life and our own personal relationship uh, with the Lord to recognize the danger that it is. But then for us to also uh, recognize this remnant that is in the middle of all of this that stays true no matter how powerful uh, the influences were there in the, the church of Thyatira. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this instruction and we recognize it. We don't um, it's not uh, obscure to us. It's not hard for us to understand. We can feel it, not only these things within the culture, but we can feel the pressure even in our own flesh and the culture even among many who call themselves Christians that you just have to go along to get along. And whatever that means in order to prosper materially uh, in this world. We pray that you use your letter to the church at Thyatira is a great protection in each of our lives from falling prey to this doctrine, to falling prey to these pressures, and to the devil's lies behind all of it. Thank you for the encouragement that is found in this letter as well. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.